Hello and welcome to Accountant Instruction Help and How To. In this lecture, we're going to be talking about the audit process over cash and other investments. Clearly, cash is going to be a big account that we want to do a lot of testing on because there's a lot of activity that will involve the cash account. At the end of this, we will be able to describe cash as it relates to various business processes, explain tests of details in auditing cash, describe how to audit the bank reconciliation, and then we want to define key controls related to investments, list and describe controls related to investments, and describe tests of details over investments. So first, when we think about cash, we want to know what cash is and define cash more specifically. That may seem very clear, but when we think about cash, we're usually looking at the balance sheet and we have that one account that has cash in it. And what is that entailing? It's not, of course, just cash. We're not talking about the company having a lockbox of cash, kind of like a bank and having a bunch of $100 in there. No uh, $100 bills that is in there. And that's not the case. What we're talking about usually, of course, is the checking account. Some, sometimes the checking account it will be the major cash account that we are taking a look at. But there are other accounts that are going to be involved there as well. So that account on the balance sheet does not necessarily just include one checking account. There could be, for example, multiple checking accounts. We might have a payroll account and we might have another checking account. We could have various accounts for different reasons, depending on the type of company that are checking accounts. We then could have savings accounts for different reasons within that as well. And we may have some other kind of cash equivalent types of accounts. So any type of account that's going to be very highly, highly liquid type of account, something like a money market fund, may also be included in the cash section. So when we're looking at the balance sheet, we see that one account called cash, then or cash and cash equivalents. Then, of course, we went to the trial balance. It would probably be including multiple checking accounts, savings accounts, and possibly any, some other cash equivalent type accounts. Now, when we go through the cash process, note that we've done a lot of testing in cash before in terms of internal controls related to processes for cash because cash is involved in a lot of our different cycles. So we're kind of looking at cash now so we can review all the different areas in terms of controls that we've taken a look at when we've gone through these other cycles. And those controls will then help us to determine how much more substantive testing we would need to be doing over the cash account. For example, there's two types of things that happen in cash. We're going to have cash uh, receipts and we're going to have the cash disbursements. If we think about the cash receipts, we think that we have the revenue process. We got most of our cash receipts are going to be coming from customers, either in the form of straight cash sales or they're going to go through the accounts receivable process. When we did some testing in the revenue process in that cycle, we tested some of the internal controls in relation to that process, in relation to the revenue process, and then, of course, some controls over that cash process as well. We also could get cash. Another big place would be if we had loans or if we issued bonds. So that's going to be our long-term debt. So the long-term debt, we tested the long-term debt and we, and we looked at the processes. That was one of those transactions where there's less of them. So we did a lot more testing of the transactions. And so we've touched on some cash transactions possibly in that area as well. Uh, the company could get cash from having investments from the owner in terms of stock sales. So that would be in the equity section. So when we test the equity section and we're going to test all pretty much all transactions for new stock release sales. So we've looking at the controls related to that. They could also like sell something like equipment. And remember, that's going to be property, plant, and equipment. We don't often sell the equipment. We usually buy the equipment. But it's possible that we could sell equipment from time to time. Not going to happen too much when we did the property, plant, and equipment testing. We tested that information as well. We went through the sales. And because there's not many transactions, we looked at all of them. 
So we've touched that to an extent. Then we have what happens when is cash going to be dispersed? Cash will be dispersed mainly probably if we buy inventory when we do purchases, when we purchase inventory. And of course, that's going to be one of our major processes we're going to test when we do the purchasing process. And when we do the purchasing process, we kind of test cash in within that process as well or controls related to it. And whether that be uh, cash is being affected because we straight paid cash for it or more likely the cash went through the accounts payable process and then we paid off the accounts payable. When else do we have disbursements for cash? We have payroll. It's going to be a large cash disbursement. So when we test payroll, of course, we're looking for controls over cash with related to payroll. And, uh, and, and that'll be part of the process as well. Cash could also go out if we're paying off something like debt. So when we test the debt process, we also look at when the cash is going out in terms of paying off the debt and or paying the interest related to the debt. So we test that process. Cash could also go out when we pay dividends. So that's going to be in the equity section. So when we're testing equity, we're testing retained earnings. We're basically going to test all the dividends and make sure that those were properly uh, declared and that they are properly processed. So we want to look at the controls related to there. And then we could have other expenses that, of course, all the other expenses that we're paying in some format or fashion going through basically the purchase process oftentimes, but other expenses that will be uh, paid out. Uh, cash disbursements, of course, there's, <laughs> there's usually a lot more different variety of cash going out when we're paying all these different vendors rather than the cash coming in, which is usually coming in in the form of revenue. Vendors being for different types of things that we're purchasing within the disbursement side. And then uh, we could have the property plant and equipment in terms of disbursement. Those are going to be large purchases we have, large cash disbursements in that case. And when we tested property plant and equipment, we would be testing that as well. So a lot of the stuff related to cash, we have touched down the internal controls in some way. We're going to want to dive deeper into them in some areas. And if we found any weaknesses in these areas, we're going to want to look into them. But we're also going to do a substantial amount of testing in, in cash just because of the nature of cash. It's, a, it's going to be an important account because it's involved in all these different areas. When we looked at a lot of these processes and we consider the internal controls as it relates to cash, note that these controls, when we look at the purchasing process, when we looked at the controls related to the sales process, we're mainly looking at things like separation of duties. We're looking at approval process, observation process, supervising processes within these areas. Those are trying to deter some areas that could happen, have problems in terms of mistakes or fraud taking place through the separation of duties, through those controls happening. Now, that, those internal controls, of course, will help us to determine how much substantive testing we need to further do in relation to cash in this case. The other control that, that every company should have, and I don't care if it's a public company or a sole proprietor, in relation to cash and therefore in relation to a lot of these other areas is a bank reconciliation so the bank reconciliation is the one of like probably the number two huge control we want over the cycle after we have the double entry accounting system itself every accounting system is going to have a double entry accounting system uh, and therefore we're going to be in balance the double entry you know the balance sheet's going to be in balance we have the double entry accounting system working this one of the biggest second controls we have is the fact that the bank is basically uh, doing our books for us on a, on separately. We have a third-party person uh, institution that is doing our books in, on a cash basis. And therefore, if we can reconcile what we have to what this person, this third-party company is doing with our cash records, that can give us a really good verification in terms of not only what's, well, what's happening in cash 
and therefore also what's happening in some of these other processes. So we should, we should always be uh, making sure that the bank reconciliations are there, and that's going to be a, really a big part of our testing as well to see in terms of the audit, are the bank reconciliations properly done and digging in any problems within the bank reconciliations. When we look at the subset of testing related to cash, remember we have the analytical procedures and then we've got the other types of subset of testing that we're going to kind of dive in there and take a look at transactions. In terms of analytical procedures, which has been very helpful for us in a lot of different areas, not always quite as effective when we think about just the cash account specifically in and of itself. Because the only kind of comparison we can do really just because of the nature of cash, because it's involved in so many things, is we can compare last cash balance to this cash balance. And we can say, well, it's a lot higher or a lot smaller than it was last year. But that doesn't tell us a whole lot because there could be a lot of reasons for that, given the fact that it's involved in a lot of different, different types of things. We can also take a look at the comparison between the budget, what the company thought would happen in terms of a cash balance at the end of the period, and what did happen. And we can say if there's a difference there. Again, uh, there could be a lot of things that would, would make that difference. And of course, we would want to ask about any kind of differences there. But those are the only type of things we can do, as opposed to a lot of the other type of analytical procedures we could do when we tested a lot of the other cycles and other accounts, which uh, we can do a lot more type of relationships, relationships between expenses and the revenue account, like cost to get sold as it relates to revenue and turnover analysis and these types of things that really tell us a lot about many other cycles are not quite as applicable. So what does that mean in terms of cash? That means, of course, that we're going to have to rely more on the internal controls so we want to do heavy testing of internal controls, and we want to do heavy, heavy substantive testing, meaning we want to test more transactions. So clearly cash is going to have a lot of transactions. If we look at the cash account, it's going to have more transactions in it, most likely, than any other account. So we're going to have to do more testing of those transactions. We won't be able to test all of them, but uh, we can do more testing. And we're, almost, we're pretty much always going to test, of course, any kind of the bank reconciliations and test uh, the bank reconciliations in terms of any problems with it and make sure that we're looking at those closely and thoroughly as well. Substantive procedures related to cash. So we're going to go through our assertions and go through some substantive tests that we can do related to cash. And remember, we're going to break these out between two separate cash transactions. We're going to have the cash receipts. So we're going to go through the cash receipts and do substantive testing related to cash receipts. And then we've got the cash disbursements, and we could do some testing related to the cash disbursement. We will first look at the cash receipts. So this is the cash coming in. We're going to look at the assertion first of occurrence. So how can we vouch that or how can we prove that what's actually there has occurred? We're looking at the ending document and we're trying to see if it actually, what, what has been reported actually occurred. How can we do that? We can vouch entries in the cash receipts journal, which is kind of like the ending document that would later be reported, reported in the general ledger and would be reported on the trial balance and the financial statements. We can vouch that back to the remittance advices. Those are going to be the documents, kind of more of the source documents. And the remittance advices are what's collected from the customers and they would be packed together to have the daily deposit slips. So the daily deposit slips could include many different deposits from many different uh, remittance advices. And then we can actually take that and vouch it to the bank statement. So that's going to be one of our major ones. We're going to have to do samples of testing about obviously we can't test everything because there's going to be a lot of cash receipts if we're talking about a large organization. The assertion of completeness as it relates to cash coming in, the cash receipts. Now we're trying to see if that ending balance on the balance sheet has been complete, meaning have all the transactions that should be in there been included in there. We can't start, we can't start from the ending and go backwards now. Now we've got to go from the source document up. So we're going to trace, in this case, the remittance advices 
to the cash receipts journal and then to the deposit slips. So now we're going the other way. We're tracing from the remittance devices going up towards the end result, which is going to be um, the cash receipts journal and the deposit slips. The assertion of authorization. So authorization, we can examine the signatures on the deposit slips and then we can check the endorsement of the proper author if it's properly authorized. So we can look at the actual deposit slips and see if the authorization is as it should be in terms of the internal control. Accuracy, if we want to test the accuracy, the assertion of accuracy, we can foot or calculate or just add up the remittance advices for the entries on a deposit slip and agree them to the cash journal and the bank statement. So we can go through there. Remember what we're, what we're looking at in terms of accuracy is we're trying to say source documents. Those are the remittance advices. If we have the separation of duties between the remittance advices and someone handling the cash, the remittance advices, if we add them up, should be added up to the sum of the deposits that are going to be deposited. And then we can simply agree whether the remittance advices are, are accurate in terms of matching them to what was actually deposited in the bank statement. Cutoff testing. So that's going to be that idea. Remember, if we're, if we're auditing as of 12.31, we're trying to say, hey, is, was this on hand as of 12.31? Should it be recorded in 12.31 or a later date? And that kind of comparison. We compare the dates of the recording of a sample of cash receipts transactions in the cash receipts journal with the dates the cash were deposited in the bank. So we're going to compare our records in terms of dates. Well, not our right, the bank. I mean, the company's records in terms of the dates to the banking records. And then we can, we can also observe cash on hand for the last day of the year and trace deposits of cash receipts journal to the cutoff bank statement. So we can look at those, those last transactions, those transactions that are on the line and compare the dates uh, within the journal for, for the books compared to the dates that were recorded for the bank. Now let's look at the other side. If we're looking at cash disbursements and we're looking through these same assertions that we're going to go through, but now the cash is leaving the cat. We're testing the transactions of the cash uh, going out of the company. So we're going to test that first one occurrence again, and we're trying to see that amount of the ending balance. Did they actually happen? So we're going to, we're going to be starting at the end and drilling backwards to source documents. And that's going to be called vouching. So we're going, to, we're going to vouch a sample of entries from the cash disbursements journal, the money that is going out, to the canceled checks. So we'll actually get the canceled checks coming from the bank uh, and, then the, and then a voucher packet or the bank, and or the bank statement will uh, test for the occurrence for the amounts that are going out. So we're going to start at the end and then we're going to go back to basically the source document. Then completeness. So we're talking about completeness with regard to the disbursements, the money going out. So in this case, what we're going to trace is we're, we're going to trace from the source documents to uh, the final uh, documentation. So we're tracing a sample of the canceled checks. So we'll actually go through there, get from the bank the canceled checks, and we're going to and we're going to trace those to the disbursement journal. So we're going from the, uh, in this case, the canceled checks, which are the source documents that have gone through the bank, and then taking them to the uh, disbursement journal, which is kind of like the end report to make sure that occurrence has happened. The assertion of authorization. So if we think about the authorization, we can go through those canceled checks again and we can look through the signatures and make sure that the proper endorsements are there in accordance with the internal controls that we have. And then we, if we want to look for accuracy, uh, the assertion of accuracy, we can, we can agree the amounts in the purchase order, the receiving report, the invoice, the canceled check, and the disbursement journal. We can tie those out through the process and make sure that uh, they are tied, the sample of those are tying out. And of course, all these transactions, remember, we're taking a sample of these in, in some type of sampling method. We can't test all of these. We're taking a sample 
of them. So if we're looking for cutoff testing, so cutoff testing, that's going to say, hey, is it correct as of 1231? The transaction's close to 1231. We want to make sure that they've been put in the proper period. And we want to compare the dates of the sample of checks with the dates uh, the check cleared the bank. So we can take take some canceled checks and, and test the dates. And we're basically agreeing that the dates that the company has recorded and tying those out to the dates that have been recorded by the bank. Now we're going to look at tests of controls related to the assertions in relation to in relation to the balance. So the, the account balance. And we're going to be looking in terms of the assertions of existence, completeness, and valuation. So the tests of details in this case would be to confirm the bank account balances with the financial institution. It's going to be one of our major checks and we're pretty much going to do this all the time. We're going to send out the confirmation in a similar way as we did with the accounts receivable accounts. And the bank being that third party, we could send the confirmation and have them verify what that bank balance is as of the end of the year and get that third party verification. Now you might be thinking, well, we already have that because we got that from the bank statements. We can get that from the bank statements. But note the bank statement, uh, although it came from the third party, has gone through the company. So it could have been altered in that case. And now that we have electronic banking, a lot of times that it's a bit higher of that to happen. So it's, it's pretty much almost, it should be the same, of course, the balance that was reported by the bank on the bank statement as of 1231 should be uh, the same balance that's going to be reported to us within our confirmation. But because of the nature of cash, we still want to get that confirmation coming directly from the bank to the auditor rather than going through uh, the company. Then, of course, we're going to test the bank reconciliation. So especially the bank reconciliation as of the, the end of the time period. So how are we going to test it? Well, first, we're going to get the bank reconciliation. What does the bank reconciliation do? Well, we'll talk a bit more about this in a second. But in essence, of course, the bank reconciliation is going to tie the amount from the bank balance to what is recorded on the books. And if we do that, then we can have some justification for saying that things are recorded correctly because the bank is really verifying all the transactions that are going through cash because they're recording it on their end as well. So if we can say, as of 1231, the bank records this number. As of 1231, we record this number differently. But the only difference between those two numbers is a timing difference, meaning we know that some checks went out, we know that some deposits happened that have not yet cleared the bank. And if we know exactly what that number is, then we can say that everything else that has cleared the bank should then be double checked and verified through the bank. So what are we gonna do? We can, we can when we get the bank reconciliation, we're going to add up or foot uh, the reconciliation of the outstanding, outstanding checks. So remember, those, those checks, that should be the big difference that we have. We're going to have these checks that have not yet cleared the bank. And most of those, of course, we would think would be, have been written as of close to the end of the year, if that's our cutoff date. So checks that have been written in December possibly have not cleared the bank because those checks would have had to go to somebody and then they, and they would have to go to their bank before our bank would have processed them. So our books would have recorded them but the bank would have not have recorded them. Therefore, that should be the difference, one of the major differences we have. We can also trace balances per the book to the general ledger. Meaning that when we're tying out our ending balance, of course, within the bank statement, that should agree with the amount that's going to be in the general ledger. So the amount that's going to be on the book balance on the bank reconciliation should agree with what's going to be tied out on the general ledger. And that it's going to be what's going to be tied out in terms of the uh, bank balance or the cash balance on the balance sheet. 
we also may need to request a cutoff bank statement and that could take the form of a few different things for example one we want the bank statement as of the end of the year so if we're uh, auditing as of the cutoff of 1231 that's the end of the year we want the bank statement to be as of 1231 now it is possible that the bank statements are not run exactly to end on 1231 so we don't have the exact end of the year in, in December we would want the cutoff bank statement to have the bank statement as of the end of the time period in that in that situation if we have a situation where the bank ends on 1231 and the bank statement ends on 1231 and that's our cutoff date that is good note that we also would want to have a bank statement for the following month or if that following month had not yet been processed at least part of it and that'll help us to tie out some of the outstanding items of course so remember that if we're auditing as of 1231 or the end of the year that's not the date that the audit happens, that's the date that, of course, we are auditing. <laughs> and therefore, it's going to be sometime after that. So if the, if the next month's bank statement has then been processed, we can look at that to look at the outstanding items, and that'll give us some really good evidence as to whether those items should have been outstanding as of that date, as of the date of uh, the cutoff. And therefore, we want to get that next statement. Now, if it's not fully processed, well, then we can get half the month. So we can get half of January if the full January statement had not been processed. And then, of course, one of our testing will be, we'll say, well, let's look at especially those outstanding deposits. There shouldn't be too many of them, of course, because the outstanding deposits are things that we recorded as a deposit, but they haven't yet cleared the bank. That, that should clear the bank pretty quickly. And, but we can verify that pretty quickly by then seeing what happened in January and tying those amounts to what has then cleared in January. And, of course, we'll do the, the same thing with the checks. The checks, we could have a longer period in which checks are not yet uh, deposited. So it's very, it's possible that a check could be outstanding for a couple months, but uh, it's, it's a lot more likely that it's going to be cleared in January. If it was outstanding in December, then it should have cleared in January. So we can at least say that it was just a timing issue if we can then clear it in January through the bank statement. So in order to recap the auditing of the general cash account, if we're looking at the cash accounts, we're almost always going to do this. We're going to get a copy of the reconciliation. We want to have a copy of the reconciliation and we're going to get a standard bank confirmation and then we're going to go through the process of reconciling the bank account and the bank reconciliation. We will, of course, put the bank reconciliation into our working papers, get a copy of the bank statements as well as, well as the confirmations and that will be part of our working papers. If we look at the bank reconciliation, remember what that is. That's going to be the balance from the bank and we're reconciling that to our balance. And any differences, then we should we were going to think about further testing to that. So if we're taking a look at the balance per the bank on the bank reconciliation, we are probably going to tie that to in some way and say, hey, this ties to and take and tie it out to the bank statement as well as the bank confirmation. And then we've got the things that should be, the only differences that should be in the bank reconciliation are usually going to be the outstanding items, outstanding deposits, things that haven't yet cleared in terms of the deposit and outstanding checks. And those are going to be checks that haven't cleared. And so we can make sure to add those up and make sure that those tie out so that, uh, so that just the math works on this in terms of the outstanding checks and outstanding deposits that are listed on the bank reconciliation. And then we can also tie those out to the statement for uh, next time period, meaning January in this case, and tick and tie those out. And we might have the, you know, the, bank's, the bank statement for January, take and tie those out and verify so that it can be seen within the working papers 
that these amounts have been tied out to the following month bank statement, the outstanding amounts. We also have the cash item of petty cash. So petty cash is going to be the, the, the petty cash that's going to be on hand for small purchases. There's not usually going to be a lot of substantive testing. We're usually going to test the controls for the petty cash and not do a whole lot of substantive testing on the petty cash, mainly for the reason that the petty cash is not usually going to be material. So when, when we think about that, that could be confusing or unusual to a lot of people when they think about that because you would think the petty cash is going to be something that's going to be more subject, more risky in terms of the nature of the petty cash. But when we compare, of course, the dollar amount of the petty cash to the publicly traded company, it's not something that could possibly uh, make a big impact on many people's decision-making processes. Therefore, we're generally going to test the controls. And if they're high, then we're probably going to do less uh, of the actual substantive testing with relation to petty cash. We are now going to move to investments. And investments can be a little bit confusing because within accounting, we often use in the term investments to mean different things. For example, if we're buying machinery, oftentimes in different situations, we'll call that an investment. And in some contexts, that will be an investment. We're investing in the long-term assets of property, plant, and equipment in that case. But here, we're moving on to those investments that are going to be the more restricted definition, the financial investments. We're talking about those bonds and the securities. So if we're visualizing the financial statements, we're, we move from cash, and now we're going to the assets of the investments. Securities and bonds, stocks are the types of assets we're taking a look at within uh, the investments area. Now, remember how the accounting for investments is going to go. There's going to have to be different categories of the investments. We put the investments in different categories. We've got the investments we're going to hold long term. We've got the held to maturity type of investments. Those could be more on the long term, not current assets side, if we intend to hold them for more than the 12 months. And then we've got the trading securities. Those are ones that we expect to trade relatively soon. And therefore, we are going to generally record those at the fair market value. And remember, if we're talking about stocks and bonds, we kind of know what the fair market value at any given time is. Because if it's publicly traded, we know that we know what the publicly traded price is at that given time. So therefore, uh, the securities, unlike something like a, like a house or a building in terms of property, plant, and equipment, is something that is more available for us to change the value based on what is currently happening. Now, there's, there's still pros and cons to doing that because the change could be temporary and we're recording these fluctuations. So that's one reason why we have these different kind of areas here. We still, the health to maturity, we're still going to basically put on there in cost and then see if it's going to deteriorate in value and then we're going to record the deterioration. If we're talking about the trading securities, we are going to actually record that change that happens based on what happens in the stock market. The other side of that, the income statement, would then actually be recorded on the income statement even though we haven't sold uh, the uh, stocks. And then we have the, help, the available for sale, which we're usually going to still change those to the market value. But we have this idea of the unrealized gain, meaning we're not going to put it on uh, net income it's going to be going into the unrealized gain. So those are going to be the categories that uh, we're taking a look at when we go through our investments. Controls related to investments that we're going to want to take a look at and check that they are in place. We're going to have the initiation function should be different than the approval function. So we should have an initiation and an approval process putting those two, two people involved in the transactions. We should have the valuation and monitoring function to be separate from the acquisition function. So the person in charge of, of monitoring shouldn't also be in charge of 
the acquisition piece of it because they can manipulate the documentation there. Maintaining uh, the securities should be separated from the general ledger. So when we're looking at the value, there's like the subs subsidiary ledger value of the securities that we have, that should be separate. That sub ledger should be separate from the GL because we're going to reconcile those two things. So we want two people involved on both ends of those so that we can reconcile and that reconciliation process can give us some more confidence as to whether everything is being recorded correctly. And then the custody of the security should be different from, separated from the accounting process for the securities. And we don't want the custody handling of the securities to be the same as the person doing the input for the data for the accounting related to the securities. The assertion of existence. When we're looking for the existence, we want to make sure that the amounts reported on the financial statements are there. They actually do exist. That's us testing from the financial statements back. We could then take a physical examination if, if, if they actually physically had the securities. Obviously, a lot of securities are going to be electronic in this point. And in that case, we want to have confirmation. We can get the third-party confirmation from the broker or the company and get that third-party party confirmation to confirm the amount reported on the financial statements. Testing the assertion of valuation. When we think about valuation, we're really determined, we're really concerned if the value has then gone down, if there's a permanent decline. So remember, even if we have those long-term securities where we usually put that on at cost, if there's a decline below cost that is not a temporary decline, it's going to be a long-term decline, then we need to report that. Now, how would we know if something's going to be a temporary decline or a long-term decline? There's a, there's a few things that we can take a look at in order to make a judgment such as that. So if we notice that the security has gone down in value, it's below the cost, and it's being reported at cost, then how can we test for whether we should devalue or mark this down as a permanent decline? Uh, one is just the fact that if it is significantly below cost, then that would be an indication that we want to look at it. If it's been significantly below cost for a long period of time, then that's something that we're going to want to look at because it's been extended for a long time period. If the company plans on selling the stock fairly soon, then and it doesn't have a lot of time to recover, then that would be another indication that we would we should record it because it's not having the time on the books in order for the value of the stock to fluctuate. If we notice that the stock used to pay dividends in the past and there's been a significant decline in the value of the dividends that are being distributed, that would be an indication that uh, there's a decline in the value as well. If there's some kind of specific condition that happened either to the company or to the industry as a whole that would be reasonable to feel that there is a significant decline in the stock, that could be a factor to look into. When we look into the valuation of the stocks, usually we're going to have stocks that are publicly traded and we can have a clear indication on values in some case. We could test the value of the stock how by tying it out to what the market value is at that given point in time. If, however, we're talking about stocks in some situations where it, we don't have the market value or there's other things involved uh, in the price, such as significant influence in, in the price, then uh, we can have some other type of, of we're going to have to have some other type of valuation. It could still be market-based, based on uh, similar data within the market, or it could be something that's going to be valuations based on management's assumptions to value the stock. If, of course, it's going to be based on the management's assumptions and we don't have the direct market in order to verify that, then we're going to have to do some more digging into that and, make, and maybe recalculate or recompute and see if that valuation is reasonable.
In order to do that, we may have to consider whether we need to get a third-party expert in order to judge the value of that item.